direct from the web, it's Billy Masters Live. And now, please welcome your host, Billy Masters. I have missed that. You know, happy St. Patrick's Day. My staff is drunk. Nobody knows what's going on. And for those of you who are wondering why I'm not wearing green, we use green screen here. And if I wore green, we found out that you would just see all of our set on my chest. So you're getting blue today. Anyway, thank you, Monica, for really being on top of things today. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Well, now you got something. Today is Thursday, March 17th. We're back for our third season, and I predict that this is the way the whole season's going to go. It's going to be exactly like this. Thank you, Monica. You can go back to your bottle. Um, I... (laughs) I was thinking long and hard about who would kick off our first se- our third season, first show of the third season. And um, we were supposed to do an interview with Sharon Gless at the end of last year. Those of you watching know that I announced it and we were pretty confident that it was going to work out. And then we had to cancel a couple of shows because... Uh, One was because of technical things. The other one was because I was traveling on the day of the show. And then um, we just got backed up and we talked to Sharon and said, let's kick off the third season with Sharon Glass. And then it turned out to be St. Patrick's Day, which is kind of appropriate because Sharon Glass certainly is uh, one of Ireland's proudest daughters. And uh, I am very proud to have her as my guest today. Please welcome Sharon Glass. Hi, Billy. Hey, Sharon. You're down in Florida. I'm in Florida. A nice Irish girl in Florida. Do you have many, many St. Patrick's Day celebrations down there? Not a lot. No, they attempted to serve an Irish meal on the island where I live, and it was a disaster. (laughs) Everyone everyone sent it back. Well, it's funny because you say in your book, uh, which I will hold up shortly, that um, that you, when you and Barney got married, you did make sure he understood that he was not marrying a cook. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I made that very clear. (laughs) I didn't tell him. No. Well, that's the interesting thing about being married to marrying somebody who you had known for, I guess, like about six years, right? Ten. Really? I'd known him ten years before we got married. And so you really had an established relationship. People should know that. I mean, we're going to be jumping around, but actually, I want to go back to the beginning because... um I said that you are a proud Irish lass, but you are half Irish. You are a quarter Basque, which is the part I want to talk about, and also English. For people who don't know, Basque is like this weird combination, France and Spain, but they kind of have their own language and ethnicity and country. They're very proud people. Very, and and the language is difficult. The food is fabulous, and you're right. They, they want to... They want to form their own country. They, they're in the Pyrenees between France right. and Spain. And your family owns over 44,000 acres of L.A. County and we're shepherds? No. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I, really. I had a photo uh, that I wanted to put in my book that is really from our land with the mm-hmm. sheep on it. And there was one <laughs> sheep in the picture. It was our sheep, you know. In one photo where the lamb, the sheep were looking, one sheep was looking right at the lens. I thought, well, that has to be my great, great, great grandmother. Right. That's the you, the performer who knows her angles. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to talk about the book, which is called Apparently There Were Complaints. And you said, I mean, I've interpreted it many different ways. And you talk about it a few times in the book. But I had read that you came up with the title first, which almost never happens, by the way. I, I didn't know the, the normal sequence, but um, I, did, <laughs> I did come up with the title first. Um, and that informed the entire book. Because, And I didn't have to do a lot of research. I remember every complaint about me my entire life. And you want to know how I came up with that expression? Yes. Or do you, um, 
I was in part of the book is about uh, my Irish bout with alcohol. Mm -hmm. And um, I played a, a, a cop, uh, Christine Cagney, um, who also was a raging alcoholic. And um, after Cagney and Lacey, it was uh, suggested, let me say, that strongly. I go, strongly, yes, <laughs> that, I would, that I go into rehab. And so I did. And there was a lot of scandal about it. Is life imitating art? Yada, yada. And um, somebody, you know, it was all out there. So when I got out of Hazleton, which was, it's a 28-day program. Mm -hmm. I was there seven weeks. <laughs> um, anyway, a friend of mine said, you were in Hazleton? I said, yeah, I was. And she said, why were you in Hazleton? And I just came up with, apparently there were complaints. <laughs> <laughs> and my boss or my my uh, husband later on, Barney, was standing mm -hmm. there when I said it and he howled. And he always loved that expression. So um, I I decided to use it for the book. And you also, one of the things you say was that if you had to go through the list of medical reasons why you were getting sober, it would take so much longer. Let's just cut to the chase. Oh, yeah. Please. <laughs> Please, yeah. So I did. Um, and for you, um, this was not an easy process. I mean, some books really, I, I'm always amazed at people who can pop out a book in a few months. I mean, this took you seven years. Seven years. I did not enjoy being a writer. I uh, really I am now enjoying enjoying being an author. <laughs> and you are also a natural storyteller because I've seen you do so many interviews and you are very detailed in your storytelling, which I would think would lend itself well to writing. Yes, it's just not a skill I had ever exercised before. And um I I think I I may say it in the book. Um I was invited to CBS. It was a, a my last series, a burn notice was ending after seven years. And so, mm -hmm. C and that was on USA and CBS invited me to come and meet them. And I thought, this is so cool. I'm going to get another series. And not just CBS, we should say, but the legendary Nina Tassler. Of course, Nina Tassler. And when I walked in her office, she said, welcome home, Sharon. I thought, this is so wonderful. Because Cagney Lacey was shot there and several mm -hmm. things I'd done. And um, so I was there for an hour and they asked all the appropriate questions as to, you know, what it would require if I wanted to do another series or blah, blah, blah. And I was very positive about it. And um, at the end of the hour, Nina says, you know, Sharon, we own Simon & Schuster. I said, I didn't know that, Nina. And she said, well, we do. And I think you have a book in you. I said, Nina, I'm really not a writer. She said, no, but you're a storyteller. Well, there you go. And that's, she said, she had the president of Simon Schuster call me the next day. What and did you learn through the process of writing? I mean, did you learn a, a skill set or did you make your own technique up? I had to learn a skill set um, mm -hmm. I, because how I started is not how it ended. Um, really? I, there were complaints. There were complaints from Simon and Schuster that my parents. <laughs> <laughs> that my at least you're consistent, Sharon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that I uh, my paragraphs were too short. Um, I wanted to put people in who were not in my life in the times I was telling the stories. Um, so there were a lot of complaints to the get style that I finally came up with um, easily. Did you write in a linear fashion or did you tell whatever stories came into your head that night and then figure out where it went? I told whatever stories came into my head. How uh, important I, I was, was an editor for you? I beg your pardon? How important was an editor for you in terms of shaping the book? Well, very, yeah. very. We never do this alone. You know, no. No, no, she was very, very important. And she was very kind. Um we became very close after seven years, <laughs> uh, seven years of complaints from Simon and Schuster. Um, but but she was wonderful. And nobody, maybe Stephen King does it alone, but you need guidance, you know. So they hung in with me for all those years. You know, you've said that you have enough stories for another book, but you've also <laughs> said you don't think you could go through the process again. What do you I, think now? Um well, it just went on the stands in, in late December. Mm -hmm. So um, um, it, it's still new to me. 
would I ever do it again? Maybe because I do have boxes and boxes and boxes of paper left. Oh, it's been for those people who don't follow you on social media and we're friends on Facebook. You have shown your storage units of of files. You keep everything. I do. <laughs> I didn't know you knew that. Oh, I've seen you open up boxes and say, well, what's in here? Oh, look at that. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's really amazing. I, I, um, I was afraid to let go of anything because it was not easy. So sure. even the, the junk, you know, is still in the boxes. Do you still have the house in Studio City? Because I know you had a place there. I do. Okay, so I do you split have... your time between Miami and Studio City at this point? Not so much, especially because of COVID. I right. stayed pretty much on Fisher Island, but um, I've been going back recently because I'm, I'm touring uh, with this book. And um, so I've been going back again. I was born in L.A. Yeah. Know. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, you 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 have a very proud lineage on both sides and really strong ties because you had one side that really is the Hollywood side and uh, a little bit more well to do. And then you had another side that were really of the earth and the land and the hard work. That those were the Basque. Yeah, and they um, are the, the Basque were the landowners, but apparently over the generations we lost it. But there are five. <laughs> there are five streets named after us in L.A. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, uh, you're you you talk so much because. Uh, you, I, for people who don't know, your parents. I don't know, should we say had a difficult relationship? You've said they probably never should have been married. Probably not. Uh, my my father should never have married. I and your mother was... These oh. people, they just um, shouldn't have been together. You know, and your, your mother was really under the thumb of your grandmother. Very much and, so. And, um, you know, I, I came up As with a very I. conflict... Well, and we're going to get to that because really at a certain point, your mother saw a way out and you had to express it. And, you know, I always believe the timing is everything. And your mother, you would come back from boarding. So I mean, we're skipping ahead. You came back from boarding school and you said, I've got to get out. And your mother said it would kill your grandmother. And she, you said to her, one of the most amazing lines in the book. Do you remember what it was? It was um, something like you did. You well, said, you, you did. Yeah, and look what it did to you. Look what happened to you. Yeah. And, and, you know, I always felt badly writing that line because my mother had a very nice life. But mm. she, um, her personality, I think, was very diminished by my grandmother. Did she ever really develop a personality? Because yes. what in the book, it really sounds like she was reflective of who was around. Uh, my mother, she, you mean reflective of her mother? Yes, her, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, she was. She was raised in a very strict household, as was I. I mean, in, you were in raised the, in the same house. Same house. You're so right. <laughs> my mother. I was raised in the same house my grandparents built that my mother was raised in, and then my brothers and I were raised in. Um, Although not exactly raised in the house, raised in a very separate, isolated section of the house. Right. We were given what was called, when my mother was young, it was called the children's quarters. <laughs> that, those were the, that was the part of the house my mother and father were given and that we all were housed in. Um, uh, and my grandmother had a whole other half of the house that we were never allowed to go in. I used to sneak in. <laughs> um, <laughs> she had satin sheets and, and also sneaked in oh, when she wasn't there and i took off all my clothes and got in it just to see what it felt like and what did it feel like sharon splendid <laughs> you know you're a very tactile person in the book you talk about um uh, like you described smells and touches and sounds were you always very in tune to your environment I think so. Yes. Yes. And certainly I, I remember helped. everything of that childhood as if it were yesterday. I'm sure there's I, I often wondered since I've done this book, if there were things I forgot 
that I was criticized for, but there was so much I was criticized for that I could fill books and books and books, you know. It sure. was a tragic childhood. It was, uh, I, I, I just had to toe the line and I could never go out to play until my thank you notes were written. And mm. Very um, proper. Very. <laughs> very. Um, and uh, um, you, you, I mean, to the point that you were a debutante. Yes, I was. And at the Ebel, which, of course, you and I know from Los Angeles, which is a lovely theater. That's where I went to Cotillion. Oh, Cotillion was. That there. wasn't oh, where okay. I made my debut. The debut okay. was, was in a bigger hotel in Los Angeles. But my brother and I, I didn't realize I'd put that in, in the, uh, yes, I did, in the book, uh, <laughs> where the Cotillion was. After, like, age four, you start, I mean, sorry, grade four, Mm -hmm. You go to Cotillion and learn how to properly ballroom dance. And interact with boys. And interact with again, boys. all the And bowing. the boys had to take a handkerchief and put it behind our backs so their hands perspiring from nerves would not mess up our beautiful bowls. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, the deb is it the debutante that your grandmother had the dress made? Yes. So. Yes. I, I, you know, again, we're skipping, but we've got such limited time. I have so much to talk to you. There's 24 pages of notes. Um, you, 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 you know, I, I don't think from the pictures I see that you were quite as fat as you say and as you're accused of being. But maybe I'm just seeing good pictures. You well, don't picture, look fat. The picture I, I couldn't find proper pictures of me in boarding school where I was like alone or whatever work, but I. In, as, as a junior in high school, it was 170 pounds. That's a lot. And how tall are you? Five, six. Okay. 170 was a lot for my frame. And um, uh, it, there's a picture of me in the book having done Misery in the West End on stage. Which I, I saw, by the way. Right. Did you see how fat I, I was? Did. Well, I there's thought. no padding there. I was just going to say, when I saw it, I thought you were wearing a fat suit. No. When I landed off the plane, the producer said, well, of course, we'll build you a fat suit. I said, you don't have to do that. I just started <laughs> menopause. I'd given up smoking. I was a raging mess. So I was perfect for Annie Wilkes. And, <laughs> and I just kept eating. And by the time I opened, I'd put on 40 pounds. My yeah, husband said. Yeah, that that was interesting. You you say that um, it, when he when he came out there and saw you, you said, "Well, nobody said anything when Robert De Niro gained weight for Raging Bull." And do you remember what he said? Yes, he said, "Well, I don't know what Mrs. De Niro felt about that, but I'll tell you, I ain't happy." <laughs> <laughs> and we should say, you know, we keep mentioning Barney Barney Rosenzweig was creator of Cagney and Lacey, producer, etc. I married um, the boss. You did. And got involved with the boss pretty late in the show. Sixth season, I guess. Sixth season. Right. Uh, but we'll we'll get to that. What, but I want, again, about your grandmother is that she almost was, at least in the book, comes out as the, the pivotal figure in your life in terms of parental guidance. Yes. I mean, my mother very much functioned as my mother, but um, my, my, uh, my grandmother had a whole other a purpose of how I sit and how I walk. And um, there were just rules that one abided by. And when she was in the room, it was scary. She was formidable. I don't you, know if you, you saw you, Anastasia. Just, I was just going to say you compare her to Helen yes, Hayes. Yes, she, she's very much like the grandmother in Anastasia in that recognition scene. Mm. But that did she scene. ever crack like Helen Hayes did? Did you see any vulnerability in her? Sure. Okay. Uh, yes, when I, you know, cheated on my diet one time when I was living with her and... Um, uh, she's my grandparents were separated. Um, those grandparents, my other grandparents were divorced. We're all Catholic, but hey. Um, and you uh, tell a great story of when your grandfather, who was a very powerful lawyer, um, wanted a divorce. And how did your grandmother respond? 
uh, my grandmother said no. <laughs> the divorce. And she, he said, why not? And she said, because I'd be much better off as the present Mrs. McCarthy than I would as the ex. And he said, who told you that? And she said, the finest attorney I know. And he said, and that would be? And she said, you. Because he was a big showbiz lawyer. And he used to tell all his famous clients, don't give him a divorce because you'll never be as well off. Mm. And she always remembered that. And the other reason is, Billy, that she was always in love with him. But they never, they never lived together after that point. Not after that point. No, he moved to Bel Air and then on to Beverly Hills. But um, um, was it hard for her living as a separated woman in those days? Well, if it was, you'd never know it. She was very, very ingenious. She moved back to uh, New Hampshire. She was from Binghamton, New York. So oh. she was from the East Coast. So she moved back there and totally redid uh, a, a house. There was things where you stop and have your horses watered and all of that. She turned mm -hmm. it into the most magnificent home. And she wrote three cookbooks. The first one was a bestseller. Wow. So she, she never let up. She never was into self-pity. She knew how to move on and certainly never allowed me to go into there. So... Hmm. Um, and we should say your grandfather, he had represented so many famous people, Cecil B. DeMille, Howard Hughes, Benson Tracy, Cary Grant, the list, Louis B. Mayer, the list goes on and on. Yes. Um, so he was really the entertainment lawyer. Yes. In, the, in what they call the golden days of Hollywood. Yes, he was. You know, and that's funny because I remember when I moved to L.A., I guess now, I first went in 87, and I went looking for that golden Hollywood, and I went, somebody told me, well, you're 50 years too late. Yeah. Um, and it's you lived through be. it. Well, really, I'd be, I, I didn't live his life. You know, no, I, but you went to a private screening of the Ten Commandments at Cecil house. That I did in, in Cecil B. DeMille's house. That's right. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it is. But normally my life wasn't like that. He was, you know, obviously a generation, two generations ahead of me. But sure. um, but yes, I did get to go to Mr. DeMille's house for that private screening before it was before it was put out to public. Um, so we're talking about that's all on your mother's side. Your father's side, the most interesting thing, and you just say it in passing, is that your grandmother told you um, that you took after Grandma Gless. Is that correct? Well, my my mother's mother, yes, the, the, yes. the one who was frightening. Uh, she <laughs> said I looked like my grandmother Gless when I got up to 175 pounds. So that was not a compliment. Oh, my God. No, she left the room. She started crying. I never see my grandmother cry. She started crying and left the room. I'm just standing um, there like some hunks. You know? and, and when you, you, but you loved your grandma, Glass, and she was the total opposite of Grandmother McCarthy. Is that Complete. she was, yeah, she seemed so full of life. You would do plays for her and tell stories and sing songs. Right. Very she was nurturing. the Irish grandmother. My, mm. my, my very staunch grandmother was English, but my, my Nellie Duggan was Irish. The one I would perform for. And your mother told you, uh, I don't know if we'd call it a fun fact or a, a warning before you went to stay with grandma glass to glass. Right. Do you remember what it was? I do. <laughs> she said, I, 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 your grandmother glass sleeps with no clothes on. I find it unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a thing to say. Well, I, I first of all, how did my mother know that? <laughs> you know? Well, and it was not your experience because you did sleep in a bed with her. We sometimes. slept in a Murphy bed together. <laughs> yeah, she had, she had a nighty on. But my mother thought it was, you know, unhealthy. She, she They just didn't like each other. Um, And so uh, your father... It, in many ways, seems to be such a strong presence by his absence. Yes. And, um, and but when you know, he was in the room, well, he was a very yeah. strong presence, too. Well, you also say that he, when he was there, he was so dashing, and you were, in your word, besotted with him because he was just, again, you're, you were his little girl. Right. Um, well, I was his only daughter. Um, right. 
But yes, I was besotted by him. He was so funny. And he played the piano beautifully, where he'd move when he played. And he'd teach me songs, and I'd sit on the piano bench with him. And in fact, when he was dying, I sang a song to him that he taught me as that little girl called I Wonder What's Become of Sally. And I sang it for him. By then, he was in a coma, and I could see his hands starting to move up. He was going, mm -hmm. and his hand was moving up. My brother said, I think he's trying to cover his ears. <laughs> Um, but, you know, uh, speaking of your father's passing, that last night with him, you really got a lot out of yourself that you felt you could not let him go without saying. And you were able very cleverly to find out that he could hear you. Well, that was, I, I, well, I asked the nurse when I went in, because I was about to just tell him all the feelings I'd had. He had pulled the plug on himself. He was mm. on dialysis for two years and USC, his football team wasn't doing very well. So he wanted out. <laughs> and, um, and he waited till you were out of town to actually do that. To do it. Because he was right. sure you wouldn't let him. Right. Well, the, the priest who told me what had happened, he said, Sharon, if he'd looked you in the eye and told you that this is what he wanted to do, looking at you, would he wouldn't have done it. And, um, and so funny, because when he was dying, I said, Daddy, I'm the one of your three children who would have understood, mm. would have supported you. But he did him. I walked in anyway to tell him well, all the things I needed to say. And um, I said to the nurse, can he hear me? She said, every word. He was in a coma. And mm. so I didn't know. She said, every word. Said, but you didn't believe her. Excuse us at first. <laughs> right. You, you, because you were afraid that, well, maybe I'm getting this out and it's not making impacts. So how did he let you know that he heard you? Well, when I was singing, when I was singing, I wonder what's become of Sally. Mm -hmm. He started making a noise and moving his hand up to the sheet. Mm -hmm. That's my brother said he started to cover his ears. Um, but I said to him, I said, Daddy, if you can hear me, I went under the sheet and I took his hand. I said, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand twice. Because once mm -hmm. it had been a reflex, you know. And he squeezed my hand twice. Mm -hmm. So I knew he heard everything I said. And shortly after I'd had my long speech, um, he let go. He waited for me to come back. And, and your brother didn't make, was it Eric that didn't make it? My older brother, Michael, who lives oh, Michael. nearby, Michael didn't make it. Eric lived way down in Orange County, so there was no way he could have made it in time. Mm. But because you were there. The doctor said that he has, he has at least two more weeks to go. But as soon as he heard my footsteps, then I was yeah. back. And I told him the things that the priest said he needed to hear, the forgiveness and the, and the scolding that I needed to say. And, and uh, he let go. So it all worked out. Was it, a, would you have had the same peace afterwards had you not gotten to say what you needed to say? No. Yeah. I didn't know that I needed to say those things I needed to say. Isn't that interesting? I don't know how much time we have, but when I was in boarding school, they sent me off to boarding school one day. And when I came back three months later, my father was gone. Well, it was all planned. My father moved out the day I went to boarding school. It was all planned. Mm. And now, they didn't want you to have to live through they that. They didn't want me. I had to eventually live through it, you know. But they didn't want me to be there when it was going on. And then came time where he says, I'm, I'm done. I have to leave now. He told my brothers, but didn't tell me. Mm. And I was in therapy at the time. She said, you get over there and you tell him. Good. How hard was that to actually do? If had he been conscious, would you have been able to do it? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I It's a very good question. No one's ever asked me that. I don't know. I I hope I would have been able to, but I wouldn't have wanted to send him out feeling like shit, you know? I mean, yeah. I wouldn't want him to feel bad, any, any worse than he did. Because he wasn't a very good father, but I and also we should mention that throughout 
your, your life after he left your mother, he never paid any alimony, child support, any of that. Not after the divorce, no. No, no. He and there's a, hard times. Well, there's a, there's a, ter I mean, there's so many stories. We can't talk about all of them, but okay. there's a, ter there's a terrible story about a watch. People oh. read the book. There's, oh my it's just God. Such a sad story. I need a therapy session after I'm through. I know. I'm sorry. Really? I want to go to pot. So what I want to go to though, is as a kid, you loved going to the movie. Well, first you tried so many different things. You tried to play the piano. You tried to be a ballerina. <laughs> you I mean, there were, it was like madness in the glass house. I can only imagine, but you did love movies. I did. And was I that an escape? Well, when, when the divorce happened, I went every single day at Christmas vacation from boarding school. Oh. Every single day I went to Grauman's Chinese theater and watched Rosalind Russell do Auntie Mame. I saw it 16 times and, <laughs> and Rosalind Russell was my therapist. I just became enamored with her and that character and my mother didn't mind. It kept me, you know, from crying. And, and I just I stared at the screen of Grom's Chinese with my big... In those days, you could sit in the movie, you know, as many times as All you want. All day. Yeah, right. right. Um, so yes, movies... I was raised in Hollywood, so movies. We didn't have theater, darling. No, um, we had, but we and had, you didn't get television until later too. We got television when I was around seven or eight. I think. Mm -hmm. So, um, I right, we did. But um, I, how the finest movies in the world were made in my town, Hollywood. I used to see well, the speed lights at night oh, yeah. across the sky when there were premieres. And you talk, you tell an interesting story, and this is worth mentioning. Um, you saw someone you knew on the screen, and it occurred to you, oh, well, if he could do it, I could do it. I did. I was in grammar school. I was six years old. And my grandmother, the fun one, the Irish one, used to take me to movies, and she took me to see the kid from left field. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and the kid from left field is being played by my classmate, Billy Chapin. Right. I thought that's Billy Her sister there. was whom? Lauren Chapin. Right. Who played, um, uh, Father Knows Best. Kitten. Yes, on Father Knows Oh, yeah. Knows. Right. But seeing Billy up there, it gave me the courage. I thought, if Billy can do that, I can do that. And so from that age on, I always held the dream very close to my heart. I didn't admit, finally, that I wanted to be an actress until I was 27 years old. It was a long time. One of the things you thought about being, and I don't know if you remember, well, of course you remember, but you described it in a fascinating way. You wanted to become a nun for a week, a day and a half. <laughs> yeah, I did. And they turned me down. Yeah, they said, why don't we think of put this on the table for a year and revisit it? I thought she'd be so pleased. I was always in trouble in the boarding school. It was a Dominican convent school. Yeah. And I was always in trouble. But I thought, gee, the principal's going to be so happy when I share my my vocation with her. <laughs> <laughs> you She's also, while in school, you uh, you uh, found an ingenious way to get out of class and get sick. Do you remember how you did it? I do. <laughs> I don't know if they, they make that product anymore. So yeah, it's well, not, ivory not like I'm pushing drugs, but ivory, no. ivory flakes really work. Yes. And you would sniff them and it would sniff make you nauseous and sick. Oh, the result was fantastic. <laughs> I was sent to the infirmary immediately and ended up staying there six weeks. Oh, my God. Mm. Well, let's not advocate doing no, no, that. No, it was the year of the Hong Kong flu and things just. And I was finally the nurse said, the only thing wrong with this child is she's homesick. Uh, and they did end up sending you home. They said, finally, they flew me home. And that's. I walked home and found my father gone. But but let's there's one other thing before we leave boarding school. At that time you learned a skill, something that you didn't know you could do. And the way you describe it is you taught yourself how to die. This is really a lot of laughs, Billy. I know, Sharon. I, and I'm the and I'm the comedian. I know. <laughs> okay. Yes. I, I I was going through a very, very dark time. Mm. And um, my parents were just divorced. Then we sold that big house on 
-hmm. in Hancock Park. And it's like my father was gone. My home was gone. I'm locked up in a convent school. My mother and I were not getting along because of the divorce. My grandmother disapproved of me because I was fat. And it was the Hong Kong flu. And finally, we were all in the student student body. And the head nun said, all of you must now take a nap. We're teenagers. But no letter writing, no talking. So we all went to our rooms. And I laid down and immediately dragged out my stationery and started writing a letter to my mother trying to explain my feelings that were heartbroken you know mm. when the nun caught me she said give me that letter give me your stationery there's going to be you know i was going to be brought down in front of the whole student body and i just started sobbing mm. i cried so hard that expression i thought my heart would break i couldn't stop i couldn't stop now i've been in therapy many times and they all say sure don't tell this story but i'm telling you so Okay, so um, something came over me, and I just, my heart died. The tears stopped. I stopped feeling. I knew I was able to absolutely function. No one would ever know what was inside me. That night, I went to dinner in the dining room with all my classmates, carrying on, but up, but up, making the jokes, doing the whole thing, but inside. My heart was dead. And it was a wonderful skill. It saved me. Saved me. Have you used it since? Oh, sure. (laughs) I mean, you are an actress. I have one friend who's the only one who knows. If I arrive at her house, she looks at my eyes. She says, are you in there? Oh, wow. Yeah. Nobody else. Um, Uh. You mentioned the house and your grandmother sold the house. And of all places, your family was living in Park La Brea, uh, which was quite a difference from this house. But um, two things you well, remember. My grandmother was in, my grandmother moved up to Carmel, but my mother, right. my grandmother got us an apartment for LA stuff. Um, which, of course, is a great, that's kind of where I, my apartment is very near there. Uh, so it's a fine neighborhood, but it's quite a difference from this mansion. And um, there were two notable times that you revisited the mansion. Once, when your mother, your grandmother, and you attended a wedding of a friend from the neighborhood whose parents bought the house. My very but, best friend. You, who used to but, spend every weekend with me there. Well, so see, she knew the house. It's <laughs> in your house, Sharon. That's right. Um, but more interestingly, uh, you went back to the house to film McCagney and Lacey. We did. I couldn't believe Barney like? picked that house, and he apparently said he knew that it was. Oh, really? Yeah. Didn't you? He doesn't remember. <laughs> he doesn't remember. Um, um, but I'll we'll have to check in. his book. Yeah. When I walked in, clearly everybody knew because the crew, who was never quiet, as you know, the crew went silent when I walked in the front door. And I think it was out of great respect that I was back in my family, Nance, my family. How did it feel for you? It felt different. Uh, The new owners, after my friend sold it, uh, didn't have my grandmother's taste and changed the French doors to all glass doors. It was an old colonial home. Anyway, they, they had no taste. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, after that, I made an offer on the house. Really? Yeah, I did. I, I, I decided I wanted to go home again. And it wasn't for sale, but I made an offer to the owner and she said, oh, I couldn't possibly sell it. Every day is Christmas here. And then she, of course, gives me the largest amount that's ever been sold in Edgar Park, right? <laughs> and, yeah, right. And um, I just heard my grandfather laughing at me. Perhaps I should have bought it. But Barney calls me into his office. I don't, think you know, I don't know if you know this story, but he calls me into his office the next week. He said, I hear you're trying to buy Muirfield. I said, well, I made an offer on it, but it's too much. And he said, Sharon, you can afford that house. You forget how much you make on this show. Mm. You can afford that house. He said, but let me caution you about one thing. The ghosts are not there, Sharon. Your grandmother's not there. Your mother is there. Your brothers aren't there. 
sorry. sorry. Anyway, I started crying in his office and um, he said, so don't buy it for that reason. Buy it because you can afford it and you'd enjoy it, but don't hope you're going back to see them again. They're nothing. So was it for the best that you didn't, do you think? Yes, because I bought a house in Malibu with my Cagney and Lazy money instead. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been back to the house since? I've been by it. It's now the Chinese embassy. No. And they painted it all yellow. It was a wooden, it was a, you know, shingles house, all natural wood with big white columns and a Southern colonial. And, and they painted it yellow. But on the, 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 the shutters on either side mm -hmm. of every window, when my grandmother built it, my grandfather's name was McCarthy. So she had a shamrock cut into each shutter. And to this day, even though it's the Chinese embassy, they still keep the shamrock in the <laughs> shutter. Probably some feng shui thing, you know. They, they what a great it. story. Yeah. And I remember that you talked about there were carvings. The girl who got married had a heart with her initials in there. And your brother, was it your brother? That my she brother, underneath the back stairs, underneath mm. the back stairs in my grandmother's side of the house. Um, we used to sneak under there and we drew a heart with my brother's initials and her initials. I wonder if that stuff is still there. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? They never saw it then. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we're, we're so going to run out of time. I, I've already talked to Laurie. I said, I want to go longer. She's like, Sharon's got a tight schedule. So um, I told yeah, her, let me know when time. we get in. You oh, made good. me well, cry. Well, that, I am the gay Barbara Walters, Sharon. Yeah. Ed Asner. Better than Barbara Ed, Walters, honey. Ed Asner uh, did the show last last season. It was one of his last interviews. And he said, I'll give you an hour, kid. And he stayed for two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. And he said to me, you know, you got me to think of things that I hadn't thought of in a while. And it made me smile. And I'm like, well, to get Ed Asner, who, of course, was your co-star in Rosie. Rosie O'Neill. I, the New Year's Eve before this one, uh, I was sitting alone. Barney was at the beach or something. And, and um, I'm sitting all alone. It's New Year's Eve. And the phone rings. I pick it up. And I hear this voice saying, hey, baby doll. And I said, oh, my God. He talked to me for like an hour on New Year's Eve. The two of us were sitting alone. Hey, baby doll. He was sharp as a tack to the oh, end. Very. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to his lovely. memorial. I'm going to his memorial in LA. Oh, you're going back. Good, good. Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, we've talked about your grandparents. Your grandfather actually, in some way, is responsible for your career. Well, yes. Well, giving that, you that's permission. That's a long story, Billy. Right. right. No, we're not going to tell it, but he. But I'll come back and do it. Yo, we'll do another one. Trust me. But he basically encouraged you. The point I want to get to is that you were afraid to tell him. You didn't even want to tell him. His wife told him uh, because you were sure he would say no. And he was like, why would I say no? He always told me throughout my life, you stay out of it. It's a filthy business. And yet he encouraged you to go for it. Well, I was 26 years old, and she, his new wife, pointed out to me I had nothing to show for my life. Well, that was true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Although you learned quite a number of skills because you had worked behind the scenes, and you oh, were very successful. Years, I was a production secretary. Oh, yeah. Uh, to the point that when you started acting and going to acting school, somebody tried to poach you to work for him. And you said, but I can't. I have acting class on Thursday. And he's like, I'll give you Thursdays off. Yeah. It's when I finally admitted what it was I wanted to do. Um, my grandfather found out. He said, how much are the classes? I said, $150. He said, you got $150. Now what? I never, ever took money from anybody. Mm. You got under now what? I said, well, I have to get a job, Grandpa. He said, okay. So you want to go home today? I'd just gotten there. <laughs> Arizona. It's a very long story about a car and an accident in Arizona. Yeah. And he, he knew when he was a thoroughbred people. racer. And he knew when a thoroughbred, when a filly was going to run. Yeah, you said that, that you had that look. Yeah, that's funny. And it's funny because then when you left him and were on 
were you on a plane? And you looked down at Arizona to LA. Yeah, and, and you looked down at LA with a completely different attitude that you had never had before. It was like an epiphany. Um, I had my hundred and fifty dollars. I had his approval. I was twenty six, going on eleven, and I looked out over LA and I said, you know, I don't have a great body, great face, but I know, I know, I'm going to succeed. I know. I knew it, and mm. I. Did. And your first day on the set, Universal, you became a contract player, the last contract player in the Hollywood system. First day on the set, you heard somebody behind you. Do you remember who it was? We talked about Walter Matthau. Oh, Walter Matthau. He wasn't on the set. Yes, he was on the, on the, on the lot. On the lot. on the lot. Excuse me. That's Sorry, right. Yes, I was yes, walking yes. to the makeup trailer. And I heard this man. Who you didn't know, here. just behind you. Yeah, he was like over to my right behind me. And, and I heard somebody say, don't ever think that you are not a pretty girl. That's exactly how he said it. And I looked around seeing who he was talking to. And there wasn't anybody there. And then I saw that it was he. And I just, oh, my God. And, and I looked at him. I went, oh. And he said, because you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and speaking of old Hollywood, you um, you mentioned Jack Lemon in the book, and, and I knew Jack somewhat. And my last interaction with Jack was at an Academy Awards. I'm telling this story because it relates to one of your stories. At an Academy Awards, and he said, Billy, cover me. And he was going over to the bar to get a hot dog. And he said, if Felicia sees me, she'll kill me. <laughs> And you have a great story about a hot dog on the Cagney and Lacey set. Oh, the hot dog story. That's right. That, it was in uh, New York. Um, mm -hmm. And we, it was every, every hiatus, I'd really work to get my body back in shape because the costumes would get bigger. And um, I was all, did my face pumps and my exercises and was eating purely in my opening scene at like midnight is me eating a hot dog. I'm embarrassed to tell you the story. Anyway, so I said, <laughs> I said to the prop master, I said, um, that's a Nathan's, isn't it? He said, no, we just got it here on the corner. I said, oh, I couldn't. I couldn't eat that. No, if it isn't a Nathan's, like Nathan's pure. Um, he said, well, let me. Uh, so Barney appears, my producer with his watch, always on his wrist saying, what seems to be the problem? <laughs> that's a little threatening. I said, they don't have an Nathan's hot dog here for me. And I don't know what that hot dog's made out of. He said, you're going to eat the scene, eat the hot dog and do the scene. I was just, oh, anyway, I did it. But I was so angry at him. I didn't speak to him the rest of the shooting that evening at two in the morning. In the interim, he had gone down or sent somebody down to um, where Nathan's is, is that pier. The, yeah, the Coney Island. He had sent yeah. somebody down to Coney Island to get the mascot, this big, huge Nathan's wiener, huge mascot who came up and bowed to me. And I just started laughing and I started dancing with him and the press got a picture of it. It's a great story. And interestingly enough, one of the reasons you and I both fly out of Miami's American Airlines. That's right. Is to get a Nathan's hot dog Nathan's on the way to the plane. Dog. I know. Uh, um, one of the things that I love about you is you seem in the whole book very grateful. And I don't, I'm wondering when you were young, did you always feel grateful or is this on reflection? Well, I was always told to be grateful. Well. Had, you know, so that was always, you know, put into my head. But I have, I'm very, very grateful. I have tremendous gratitude for all that I had, the highs and the lows. And you, you try to share a lot of lessons with younger people, particularly people who are going to go into the business. And you owe, and you say it a few times in the book, take every opportunity that comes your way because you don't know where it's going to lead. You don't know you who's in the audience. Well, you did a play at the Encino Community Center for two <laughs> nights, a terrible play. <laughs> but... You thought to yourself, well, what else am I going to do? I'm here. I'm, it's a friend. I'll do the play. And I was a young acting student. I would. Yeah. I had to audition for it, but I got the, the female lead. And yes, um, 
what happened was the opening it only ran two nights it wasn't very good and we didn't charge anybody but um i made a mistake it was opening night i was nervous and i played this nurse who had this long nurse's outfit it was a period comedy and i'm backstage taking off my nurse's outfit to put on my other outfit to play this other role and mm -hmm. i all of a sudden i heard i'm missing my cue oh I had to put on the nurse's outfit and get out there in time to give my response. Mm -hmm. The nurse's outfit was totally opened. I didn't have time to button it up. My hair was all down when it was back in a prim ponytail. My hair was down. I, I looked like I'd been getting laid in the back. <laughs> and the audience went crazy. They thought I was some gifted comedian. It was a mistake. And it's one of those mistakes that made my uh, career because I got a call the next day at my office from a man from publicity, Orrin Borston at Universal Studios. And he said, you're a brilliant comedian. I want you to meet Monique James, the head of our talent department, and John Cassavetes and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, cut the bullshit. Who is this? Because yeah. I worked on the other side of the camera. I knew all that right. stuff, you know. <laughs> and he said, why don't I have Miss James call you? I said, do that. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> and damn, she did. And I went and read for her and she signed me that day. And she really nurtured your whole career. And one of the fascinating things, I've never heard anyone else do this, is she would bring you into a screening room to see your dailies. And she said, okay, see that? Don't do that. Don't Look do at that. this. This is good. Do that. <laughs> Why right. are you doing that? And I really think all learned. Oh, I'm sorry. I think all contract players were put through that. At least yeah, the but not like that. like I was. Well, that was really camera training. I mean, oh yes, you, you so, know, you had no camera training at that point. That was it. Oh no, I had no training. But she, <laughs> well, you did have some training. You did. I did eventually. But when I first signed with her, I was in an acting class, and she asked me to please stop going. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't put it in there because I didn't want to say anything unkind about the coach. But the uh, she <laughs> said, anybody who goes to that class always comes out altered. And she said, I, I want to stop. So stop studying. I'm well, that's start studying with the, that is the But that's the interesting thing about Monique, because she didn't want to tell you this, but said that your individual parts seemed like they shouldn't work but when you put them all together Sophia Loren said a similar thing she's like the lips are too big the hips are too big the nose is too narrow but somehow it works on me and you're ah. the same way yes yeah, I think she said uh, your your mouth your voice your your voice doesn't match your walk you know your voice doesn't match your face your uh, your your swagger doesn't match your lack of confidence uh and and your mouth it and your mouth comes out of your mouth comes, like comes out of a teamsters. And she <laughs> said, Nothing works about you. But she said, you put it all together and something happens. So I went out of that meeting still not knowing why she signed me. It was the most confusing critique I'd ever received. And um yeah, uh, one of the first things you, the first thing you got was a Marcus Welby. And what was interesting is you did two, the first two years, and then came in as a regular for a part completely ill-suited for you. I was totally miscast. And they cut my hair all off in like this perm. It was awful. And um, yeah, it was to pay, play the love interest of um, Jim Brolin, James Brolin. What was that like, Sharon? There was no like. I mean, we barely spoke on the set. <laughs> I mean, he was very nice. He was very nice to work with, but there was absolutely no chemistry. It wasn't his fault. I was totally miscast. And so after a year where there was no sparks at all, uh, I was fired. But um, right. I went on to other things. I was, I was just going to say, okay, so we get to switch with Robert Wagner. And you, were, you know that if you don't get this, you're going to be fired. Your contract is going to be dropped. I knew and you Beneath did not do, yeah, right. And you also did not do the best, well, the audition did not start great. The audition with R.J. Wagner, with Robert yeah, Wagner? Did, didn't you say that he really helped you in that audition? Well, he, I, I it was just Glenn Larson, who was the producer. And mm -hmm. uh, 
and Robert Wagner sitting across the room. I, I was so shy. Every time mm. I look over Robert Wagner, I just, I mean, I'd go pink. And, and he is person, Robert Wagner. He is Robert Wagner. He just called me yesterday. Uh, oh. Anyway, he, the, the description of the character was a Natalie Wood lookalike. Well, <laughs> check it out, you know. <laughs> and I'd look over at him and sure he'd just be, oh. And um, he made me smile. He knew what he was doing, you know, but mm. I got so shy that he made me smile and I auditioned for him. And um, he wanted me. Uh, Glenn said, but that haircut she's got. <laughs> and RJ, Robert Wagner, stuck up for me. He said, Glenn, that's why they have, oh, because I was supposed to do undercover with him. Oh, okay. Cases. He said, but that haircut, it's kind of limiting, isn't it? And, and RJ said, Glenn, that's why we have wigs. So I and got- And then you <laughs> asked him later after you got the part, if he knew that was your last chance. He said he knew that I was going to be out on Lancashire Boulevard. Yes. But said, what did he say to you? Fired? He yeah. said, I did. I said, did you hire me? Is that why you hired me? He said, no, I'm not running a charity. <laughs> I, said, I hired you because you were the best for the part. See? Yeah. And, and years did. later, I did a series yeah. called The Trials of Rosie O'Neill. Mm -hmm. I played his kid sister like in Switch. But the mm -hmm. trust Rosie O'Neill became my lover. And it was so weird, the difference of, oh, my God, now I'm going to be necking with him. <laughs> Not a bad thing to do. Not at all. He's a very good kisser and very gallant. He's from the old school where if he's doing a necking scene with a woman, he hides her neck with his hands so you can't see any wrinkles. How cool wow. is that? Um, you also said that Wayne Rogers was a good kisser despite the fact that he seems to be a loathsome person. Um, Perhaps and I was speaking, strong. And I was speaking to my friends and yours as well, uh, Ray Buktanika and Karen Salkin, his yes. girlfriend. And so we, I already knew the story about the party and Lynn Redgrave. We're not going to tell it. Go read it in the book. But I heard it for years from them. But the codicil to that was that Karen had left a roll of film in your house and you got a lot of film developed. You said, oh, these must be Ray's pictures and you messaged them over to Ray. And she never got them? She got them. No, she got them and she thanked you. Oh. And she said, Sharon probably doesn't even remember this because that's just how she is. She would, most people would say, oh, these aren't mine and toss them. And she's like, Sharon's the type that messaged them over. And they oh, of course. they were they're very, very fond of you, but they they were very Lynn, good to me. They all loved Lynn Redgrave, you know, and here I'm stepping in replacing her under very unfortunate circumstances for Lynn. And um, and for you, because it's not fun being the replacement on an existing set. That's not the first time I've done it. <laughs> Which is why you almost into Cagney and Lacey. Right. which was you didn't want to be the third. You had already played a cop and there was a guy involved that you really didn't want to be involved with anyway. Right. You know, well, and isn't it funny? Right. Um, but as Barney says, actors are not always the best judges of material. So um, the third time, finally, I, I met him, uh, Lucio and Franks, couldn't stand him. And um, I ended up marrying him 10 years later. Yes. All right. But um, anyway, I finally got smart and finally said, yes, here I come. And you also said that Barney was the first feminist you ever met. Very first. Yeah. The problem with being married to a feminist is he says things like, you wanted equality, open your own door. Wow. <laughs> no wonder it took six years for you and him to get together. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think I was always smitten with him, but he pulled no punches. And he he developed a show for women, the likes of which really has never been done again. Changed the history of television for women. You know, Tyne had said that the relationship with him was a permanent and delightful wrestling match. Did you feel right. that way as well? Um, in a different way. In a different way. Yes, Barney wouldn't. Funny asks that the two of us not come into his office at the same time. 
wow. He said, it's just too much. I can't take it on. So we do what he called the, the cuckoo clock syndrome. The coo- he, one of us would go in and leave. The other one would go in. But we never mm-hmm. went in together. It was too much for him. Um, one of the most interesting things, you don't talk about it in the book, and I'm just curious to ask you, is you had gone in after Meg Foster had done six episodes, only two or three of which had aired. Mm-hmm. One of the episodes you did was a remake of one of those unaired episodes, Immigrant Worker, which Meg no, had I already never seen. knew that until this interview. Oh, oh, all right. Hi. Then, then my question, did you see the Meg Foster version is irrelevant? Obviously, you never had. I saw all six, I believe. They made okay. six. I think they aired four. Um, I did see all of them because I wanted to see if there How was anything wrong, could I fix it, you know? Um, and I saw some things that I knew I could change. And, and, um, but I, did, I don't think I realized mm. that I had actually shot later on an episode I had seen of them because we were so different. Well, and you also really made a point of strapping down your bosom, changing your hair, really making a physical difference between you and time. Well, actually, the truth is I was the one with the set. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. So you said strap it down because it well, doesn't work Well, I was trying to character. change Cagney. I wasn't, what I wanted to do was changing the relationship between Cagney and Lacey. Mm. They, they seemed to do even similar gestures at the time. And, and so I, I just started out as simply as when Tyne crossed her arms, I'd put my hands in my pockets. I mean, I'd do anything to make us different. Right. Um, if Tyne had a coffee mug, you had styrofoam cups. Yes, but Chris I, wanted, was I wanted that for Cagney because that yeah. was very impermanent. Mm. And she was not anybody who wanted any permanence in her life. So, and Tyne's character was very, you know, matter of fact, would wash her cup, put it away. I'd drink and throw it away. It was just, we were just, became these two totally different characters. And obviously I was the alcoholic and, and Tyne was the, the cop, the wife, the mother. She was juggling a lot. But, you know, it's funny. Tyne said once about you that Sharon managed to be blonde and a person, a smart blonde, a dangerous blonde, and a flawed. Sharon really loved that flawed stuff. I do. I do. I, I, she was selfish. Mm. She, was, uh, she was a lot of uh, disconcerting things about her, but, but Barney said it worked. You know, you come to love somebody like that. I mean, she's so flawed. Well, because it's an anti-hero kind of thing. Right. And I didn't want to be, I don't know, we could say things on your show. I didn't want to be flawed with the tits. Yeah. You know, it was just, when I first came on the show, a critic said, well, the blondes from the Copacabana School of Acting. I was so pissed. Yeah, but there was something funny that happened because of it. Who was right. it that gave you the the graduation oh, diploma? Me, my friend, my friend from from uh, from um, I forgot who. From from the the the, the house calls. I can't. Oh remember. yeah. Oh gosh, forgive me. Anyway, That's he right. came to see me on the set, knowing me well enough to know that really scalded that that critique, and he brought me a diploma that he had made up. With my name saying I was from the Copacabana School. Mark Taylor. Mark Taylor. Exactly. I know that you're going to want you want to do that. Um, we believe it or not, people are watching saying they're just getting to Cagney and Lacey and we're cutting it off. Well, that means that they'll have to come back and watch us again. I hope you invite me again. Billy, I, wonderful. I, I, I would love to. There's so much because there's your theater stuff, there's queer as folk, which uh, I think that. You really cemented you as an icon in our, in the gay community. Um, although you you were already an icon, frankly. I, I was saying. very lucky to get that role. I went after that one. And you um you were willing to take anything. You didn't care about the money. You didn't care about the billing. You didn't care. You just wanted that. I didn't character. care that you were shot in Canada. I didn't care. I wanted to be part of that. You know, you're really an actress's actress, and I think that um. You You know, you've put a lot of your personal life on hold for your craft and for the projects you chose. And um, not that you didn't have a good time 
Sharon, you had a good time. Yeah. It, it but you did decide. Personal life. Well, you, you make a life. point, you know, and that's the thing. I just want to end with, you made a point to saying you didn't think you could have kids because you really wanted the career and the career was kind of your kid. Exactly. And also I, I, I had such a wonderful mother. Um, I, I think becoming a mother is the most responsible job anybody can ever take on in their lives. Be too much for me. And also I did love my career and I couldn't serve both. So. And interestingly, when you told your mother you were going to marry Barney at long last, she said, well, you didn't really have great marriage role models. That's <laughs> right. When he asked me, I called my mother crying. She said, darling, what's wrong? I said, Barney asked me to marry him last night. She said, well, isn't that what you wanted? I said, yes, but I know, I, I know because it didn't just be to ruin everything. And she admitted, she admitted, she said, well, you certainly haven't had very good role models. <laughs> I think that's a great place to end. Sharon, you are a delight. I have oh, enjoyed this immensely. And we will definitely have you back again soon. Thank you. You've made it a pleasure. And Thank let's you. remind everybody. Apparently, there were complaints. It's fantastic. And if you're really in the mood, if you're travelers out there, get the audiobook because Sharon reads it herself. The audio's won three awards. No, I didn't know yeah. that. And it's great because you also act out the things. You do the voices a little bit. And that husky voice is not a bad way to go to bed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Happy, happy um, St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Everyone, thank you for watching Billy Masters Live. Uh, we've had so much fun with Sharon Glass. I adore her. Uh, if you get to see her, there's going to be, there is a book tour. Um, and so check the website on Facebook, on social media. She is going around signing books, doing per personal uh, readings. And uh, you don't want to miss that. Uh, we will be back next week with Sam Harris and also a panel discussing what's going on in this world. So we will see you next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, New Pacific. It's uh, crazy being back, uh, back on the air, but it's fun and I'm thrilled to be back. I have to figure out where is the outro. Is that the outro? Oh, my God. You know, when you're not doing a show for a while, you forget what you're doing. Outro. There it is. This has been Billy Masters Live. I will see you next week. Until then, take care, everyone. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Remember, if we're here, God willing, we're live. Bye.